Hi, friends. Uh, excited to be talking to you today about college sports and especially excited to be talking, actually talking directly to Derek, uh, who <laughs> has been incredibly gracious enough to join me for this conversation after uh, I recorded 45 minutes talking about college sport and managed not to actually record my voice. Um, so this is this is take two, but it's going to actually be better than take one because we're going to be doing this um, synchronously together uh, and that's going to make for a way better conversation and we haven't had a conversation like this in quite some time so no it's been a frankly, while yes i'm very very pleased to be doing this this way even though it's 6 45 in the morning which i'm less pleased <laughs> about but you know such is life okay so here's the thing like why are we talking about college sports today uh, obviously it's because we've seen what someone like Dabo swinney would describe as essentially an apocalypse in college sport Athletes have finally um, been allowed to earn money and yet remain eligible at universities. And that has to do with a couple of really significant events that, again, have happened in just the last um, couple weeks, few weeks. Uh, the first of those, uh, although they're, of course, related and they're not, they're not actually recent events. These have been things that have been playing out over years. But the Supreme Court actually reached a decision in the Alston case. And it was a 9-0 decision against the NCAA allowing for educational compensation. Um, And in fact, in the written decisions, really the the justices loudly railed against amateurism, the very principle of amateurism. In fact, the incredibly hateful Brett Kavanaugh wrote, and I quote, Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under, normal, under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sport should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law, wrote Kavanaugh. Um, so, you know, that was a pretty, uh, pretty harsh indictment, especially since the NCAA had actually lobbied to get the case in front of the Supreme Court justices, right? So that was part of their long-term plan to buttress amateurism as a principle, and obviously that didn't go very well in the end. And as a consequence of that, although the NCAA had had a very long time to think about the issue of name, image, and likeness, that is the fact that athletes were not allowed to essentially sell their name, image, and likeness in the free market, because if they were to do so, they would have been ruled ineligible by the NCAA, and thus forfeit their right to um, participate in college sport. Um, And although uh, there had been state legislation passed in states like California first, and then at this point, I don't even know, I don't know the numbers were, but you know, more than half the states in the country, I believe, had actually passed their own separate name, image, and likeness legislation that was intended to kick in at various times. Although there had been federal legislation that was being kicked around, Although the NCAA was claiming to come up with their own policies, right? This is all dragging on, dragging on um, until the point when we were getting to July 1st, 2001, um, at which point I believe the California legislation was supposed to take effect and as well as legislation in other states. And, um, and then suddenly the Alston ruling comes through. The NCAA sees that they don't have uh, a leg to stand on when it comes to amateurism. And so... They suddenly did a complete about face and said, listen, if your state has NIL legislation, you may in fact follow that legislation and um, still be um, 
above board when it comes to NCAA regulations. And if your state does not have NIL legislation, that means that your university can, in, in effect, write their own legislation and um, like uh, you write their own rules. And as long as you follow those rules and those rules are in, in um, accord with certain basic principles, then athletes can, in fact, uh, sell their name, image, and likeness. And so here we are. Um, it's uh, only a few days after that, uh, just over a week after July 1st now. And we, in fact, have seen athletes do just that. Athletes are selling their name, image, and likeness and earning a bit of money. Uh, and as a consequence as well, what we have seen is a huge wave of celebration, a celebration of the death of amateurism and in many quarters, the end of exploitation. That is a celebration of the end of exploitation in college sport. I mean, clearly this is a momentous change. There's no doubt about that. No one could argue that. But is it the death of amateurism, Derek? Like, what do you think of this? What's, what's happening? Do, do you, are you <laughs> celebrating this moment? Um, or not yeah i mean i think you you sort of nailed it when you said um that it's a momentous change it's a big change it's an important change it's something that's long 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 overdue um but does it fundamentally change the power relations that are at play between um, campus athletic workers and their employers does it fundamentally change um what is actually happening in terms of the exploitation of these uh, campus athletic workers, and I, and I would say no, um, and for a variety of of reasons, I think that this um, is, and I, we've talked about this before, Nathan. This is sort of a nil to me is a huge distraction um, from the root cause of the exploitation or the root of that exploitation, which is fundamentally built into um, revenue generating high big time college sport um and what nil does is creates a whole new set of problems that i think we'll get into throughout this episode um namely i, I think the first one is like um it, it one hides um the decades long um exploitation that's been happening and it it makes it seem like these athletes are now able to earn their fair share of revenue, which is not the case whatsoever. They earn revenue related to, I would, I would say, non-sports things. They have to kind of hustle. Uh, and I know you want to talk about like the gig economy. Um, and they have to sort of go on their own and find endorsement deals and do all of these things. And they're able to make money off of YouTube. That's a separate work. That's work unrelated, often unrelated to their athletic endeavors. And at the end of the day, they're still not compensated in any real way for the actual labor, which is violent labor, which leads to injury and harm to the athletes. Um, so I think that the, the celebratory approach to nil um, that we've seen is, is like, it's understandable. It's good. Um, but it's also like distracting us from, I think, the, the wider picture, um, which is to actually for once and for all deal with the rights of, of campus athletic laborers, um, deal with their ability to have a say in their working conditions, to have a say in their compensation, to have a say in their benefits, rather than this sort of patronizing, 
um, we will let you go out and earn more money um, through sort of side hustles or doing other things for your um, uh, uh, for endorsement deals or or whatever. The, it's not just endorsements. It's now campus athletic workers won't get suspended for having a YouTube account or um, starting a, a t-shirt or clothing company. But how is that payment for uh, their athletic labor? You could argue that like it, it's influenced by. Um, so like perhaps an endorsement would make no sense for someone for just that quote unquote normal college student. And they have some sort of social capital built in by virtue of being a campus athletic worker, but they're still doing the work to endorse these products. So they're still doing things to make money, like starting a clothing brand or starting a YouTube video or do doing something on social media, all these things, their work that are separate from their athletic labor. And we're still, still after nil, after the Supreme Court rulings, we're still not dealing with the fact that their actual labor, which I would argue is like the most important thing here because it's also violent labor and also like takes aware, like there's a wear and tear on, on their bodies. We're still not dealing with that whatsoever. So I think to sum up my sort of approach, I think that this has been a great distraction um, for what I would argue is a more fundamental change, likely still, I think, coming eventually to the world of college sport that might render college sport completely um, unimaginable. It might render it, 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 it may actually completely fundamentally change college sport, which is ultimately to deal with um, the rights of campus athletic workers and ultimately to have them, give them a full say at the table in terms of benefits, um, health benefits, uh, compensation, um, rights, working conditions. Um, and I think we can talk about all those things, but I know you want to talk about a few, well, um, a few thoughts that you have on, on this idea of the death of amateurism as well. That's it. I, and I, and I obviously agree with you. Just a, a couple, you know, small, you know, news items that, that directly relate to some of the things you said. So you were describing this as a sort of a hustle, right? Like a, a, an extra hustle on the side that mm -hmm. college athletes now have to engage in in order to get paid because they're not actually getting paid yeah. for their athletic work. Um, yeah. So Derek King, who has been now celebrated, he's a University of Miami um, quarterback. He's been celebrated as a sort of poster child now for like how great this new NIL development is, right? Because athletes yeah. can cash in so successfully. And this is like, the, this is just coming from a tweet from front office sports, but like to give you an idea of what is being celebrated, it said, so far, Miami quarterback Derek King has signed with college hunks for $20,000, launched a podcast, developed a website, created custom apparel, founded an NIL marketplace, added a creative director, started plans to split money with teammates. I mean... He has a 40-plus-hour-a-week job already that involves the literal sacrifice of his body. But, like, we're supposed to celebrate the fact that he has to do all those other things on the side? That sounds absolutely grueling, right? Like, I mean, people who yeah. don't do it don't realize how every single item on that list is an extremely challenging obligation. Developing a website and launching a podcast and creating an apparel line yeah. are jobs, as you say. That's, like, a lot of work. It's totally yeah. absurd that we would expect people to be doing this extra. Like you said, it. this is the gig economy, right? The idea that you have to do each and every one of these things for yourself 
just in order to get by, just in order to make money. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that's absurd. Another thing about it that, that you were mentioning in terms of like college athletes still not actually having a say in their working conditions. Mm-hmm. We just learned that the U- University of North Carolina football players don't want a 12-team playoff, right? Yeah. Um, because they understand that if they, have a, if they want to have a future in the sport playing football, they don't want their body to be used up in those college years. But they're still, because yeah. they understand this, they're still not actually getting paid for those college years, right? Even if they're making a little bit of money on the side. That's not where they're really going to make money off of the sport. And they don't want to have to play those extra games. The schools can rake in more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those, those, two things, those two things are completely connected, I, I feel. And, and a lot of people are missing it because a lot of like proponents of this agreement would say, like, finally, athletes are able to, to make money. And what's the problem with like the gig economy? What's the problem with having to, to put in extra work for extra money? But once you like peel back the onion in terms of like realizing that they're, they're the risk aspect of their life, like the, the, the harm done to their bodies and their minds that they, they need for the rest of their lives is still not being compensated in any tangibly new way. Then you realize like adding that supplement in, in a free market, yes, people should be able to like, people should have to like work for their money or like whatever. That's the, the, life, the life we live. Like that's capitalism. Like we have to take on hustles to earn money. But at the end of the day, you're still, nothing is fundamentally changed in terms of the exploitation of their, their sport body, of their corporeal body that is like being um, attacked and dealt with and they don't have a say in those working conditions so all those things go hand in hand and and i've seen a lot of arguments that like these athletes should be should have to like earn their money like anyone else like fine and if they want to do things not related to their athletic labor but we still haven't dealt with their (laughs) their rights when it comes to athletic labor so what are we talking about exactly they have been they've been earning money for someone all along yes problem is and they still will Exactly. That's it. That's exactly it. It's still not finding its way back to them. And I like, I like, I actually really glad that you underscored the free market here because that's what's making me want to wretch, to be honest. When I yeah. like day to day, when I log into Twitter or whatever it is, and because now the college, now the college sports journalist, this is the, the one thing about it, a little shot in front I get out of it, that not these, these college sports journalists who were so, you know, opposed to players getting paid anything for their labor or getting compensated in any way because they were so committed to the principle of amateurism that was still subsidizing their careers. Now they have to report on every little deal signed, every little deal with a local car wash signed by a college athlete. Like that's their job now. So, you know, I get a little satisfaction from that. But I mean, as I'm watching that, honestly, Derek, like what I'm seeing is the way in which these athletes are being interpolated into this neoliberal gig economy. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. what they're being told now is like the hustle is good. The hustle yeah. is who you are. Right. So it's like yeah. suddenly like not, not to say that the free market isn't celebrated in this country, but like it's certainly it's become more contentious. And yet now yeah. we're supposed to be treating what is like r- capitalism in its rawest form as some kind of horizon of emancipation for college athletes. And like that's what makes me want to throw up. Because, it's incredibly patronizing, too. Like, it's incredibly like, okay, now we're going to allow you to find, once and for all enter the gig economy, but we're still not going to pay you for your actual labor. 
Like we're it's still the, not going to give you anything, um, any rights at that table. It's, it is the ultimate scam. They have found a way to convince everybody that getting the universities are the they I'm talking about. Universities have found a way to convince everybody that it's a huge sacrifice for them to let someone else pay their workers for them. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, like, could you, yeah. have, could you have a more sort of insidious long con? It's unbelievable. And then further, like, look what we're supposed to be celebrating. They are signing, these athletes are signing deals with Barstool, right? Mm-hmm. And again, that is something we're supposed to be thrilled about. And, and in this situation, I don't, like, normally, if a professional athlete signs with Barstool, people should be outraged about it because they're not paying attention or they are paying attention, but they are absolutely making themselves and their name, image, or likeness complicit with a deeply racist and misogynistic company. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we should indict every single time. Except the situation here is that we've created a dynamic where these athletes literally can't get paid for their work if they don't sign with Barstool, right? So I have to say, like, we have literally created... um, a structural environment in which signing with Barstool is essentially how you get paid for your work. Yep. So yep. it's really not their fault, right? Um, but, it's, but it certainly is a terrible outcome for everybody because mm-hmm. it's great mm-hmm. news for Barstool. It completely washes Barstool's image. Um, yeah. It's just, it's sickening. And, and what else are we seeing? We're seeing like law professors and other reformist advocates of college sport um, who have been pushing and pushing for NIL. Suddenly I'm watching these people literally involved in the deal making of these athletes like whoa yeah why are yeah yeah, yeah. people like who brokering are, these deals exactly they're brokering these deals they're getting a piece of the action so like yeah. i guess that that whole thing about you know athletes rights was really just another grift right just another way for someone else to get a piece of the cash that college athletes are making um yeah that leaves me feeling really uneasy too and you know in case people are listening and thinking like whoa i thought you guys cared about college athletes like what's happening here you prefer the amateurism model like it sounds like this is just like a kind of complex roundabout way of buttressing like this evil system no that's not what we're saying here we, ha- we have to be clear about the fact the problem is not that athletes are getting paid the problem is not that the system is changing those things are good the problem, yeah. and you were getting, this is what you're saying, Derek, but I just really want to underline it so no one is left with a shred of doubt. Yeah. The problem is that the athletes are not getting, the, they're not receiving the revenue that they themselves are earning. In any kind of system of athletic labor, just yeah. like in all capitalism, but it's clearer in the context of athletic labor. Workers yeah. are the ones producing value. Capital doesn't produce the value. Capital just tricks us into thinking, they deceive us into thinking they're producing the value so that they're being generous and benevolent if they dole out, you know, $15 an hour to workers. But no, in fact, the workers are producing all the value. And you can see that clear as day in the context of sport, any kind of athletic labor, because you know that you cannot replace Jordan Bohannon with me, LeBron James with you, and get the same commodity at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The commodity spectacle is garbage if it's you and me on the court. Therefore, no one buys it. Therefore, there is no value there. So the capitalists can front as much cash as they want, but they have nothing to sell unless they have the exceptional labor of the Bohannons and LeBrons and et cetera of the world, right? So it's clear. Mm -hmm. So we know that all the value in college sport, all of it, every penny is produced by the athletes and yet they receive none of it. 
And that is why the system is profoundly exploitative and unjust. And that is why literally not one aspect of that dynamic has changed. And that's what we're railing against here, right? That the only endpoint, if we're talking about like an end to exploitation in college sport, and then we're just speaking about the economic side of it here, the only endpoint that actually um, is, would satisfy our concerns is if the money goes to the players directly, i.e. pay for play. And this NIL is not pay for play. NIL is pay for hustle on the side. Let's also make one, one other thing clear. Like NIL is a long overdue under acceptance that these athletes should have been paid for these things a long, long time ago. The, the things that they're getting paid for have literally almost nothing to do with their athletic endeavors. So yes, they can, uh, aside from maybe endorsements, maybe endorsements from the name is very, very much connected, but everything else is like very, very side hustle. So the fact that the, that these athletes weren't able to start a clothing company um, disconnected from from um, their their on the field athletic labor, they weren't able to start a YouTube video or earn money off of their social media presence. Like in in 2021, it's it's shocking that they it they haven't been able to earn that money for so long. Nil has not changed a single single thing when it comes to revenue generated on the field, and you've pointed this out. That's why I think like it's it shouldn't be celebrated to the to this extent because like fundamentally nothing has changed and and that's I think what these institutions want. <laughs> I actually I, I don't think I know. These exactly. institutions don't want fundamental change. They don't want to actually deal with the the working rights of campus athletic workers. They don't want to deal, they don't want to have them at the table making decisions with them. They want to make decisions for them. And that's why I, I've used the word patronizing kind of over and over again. I view this all as like incredibly patronizing to say like, oh yes, you're allowed to, to make money off of your, your non-football or non-basketball work. To me, that's a, that, like a really, really gross sort of feeling and message that that sends. And when you celebrate this, um, the, the, the modifications that we've seen over the past like month, um, the, which are important, again, to underscore that, important, benefiting athletes, good, good changes. But at the end of the day, it's still like this like patronizing, like you still aren't able to actually earn any revenue for, for what you've done. And we're still going to take that money and distribute it amongst universities and amongst athletic departments and coaches and therapy staff and all of these different um, people who are paid off the base of that. And then that will also still feed the college sport industrial complex and all of the people who make money, all the, the Rothsteins and Greenbergs of the world. Exactly. And like, just going back to your point about the players not still not having a seat at the table, right? So that this deeply paternalistic dynamic with that example of those UNC football players in the 12-team playoff, in the story the ESPN reported, we were told that the ACC had instructed teams, coaches, to consult with their players about their views. But yeah. in, in the, the, the next sentence, it said, but at the same time, the, the, the conference had moved ahead with the 12-team proposal. Yeah. <laughs> so in other words, they're consulting the players, but it's just tokenistic, right? Because yes. you, you can have a conversation with someone, but if the conversation has no bearing whatsoever on the decision-making process, 
right? Then it is patronizing. It is condescending, right? It's just like trying yeah. to make people feel included without actually including them. And that's not the same thing yeah. because, and this is what you were saying, the power dynamic is completely unchanged, right? And yeah. this, is, this is what we have to get to next because this is not just a question of compensation. What is so dispiriting about the pivot to NIL as the front against NCAA, NCAA exploitation? And what I mean by that is like this, this idea that it is the be-all and end-all, right? That it, that actually mm-hmm. is the battle. Yeah. Um, and by the way, and, and I want to say something else about this parenthetically. I've been really disturbed to see the extent to which some current and former athletes have been encouraged to put all of their reformist energies toward NIL and away from other crucial subjects struggles like unionization um and i i have really good reason to believe like that that's coming from leadership in some quarters that's a very conscious choice by people that some people that have been involved in this process of pushing back against the ncaa and to me that feels like a kind of co-optation because if Mm -hmm. i am a university if i am the ncaa itself the absolute thing i want to see my opponents fighting for more than anything else is is the fact that someone else can pay my employees. If that is the entire horizon of their struggle, then the worst case scenario is that my PR improves and my bottom line remains exactly the same. And if I am any rationally functioning corporate entity, um, which these universities pretend they are not but actually are, Mm -hmm. that's a good outcome. There's nothing that's, wrong with that's that. That's the outcome. That, that's why this is such a great distraction, right? Exactly. <laughs> They've successfully done it. If this is the end of the movement, they've right. successfully done just that. That's right. And so it's one thing to see, to hear that kind of rhetoric maybe coming from the universities. But when you hear it coming yeah. from the people who are supposedly the advocates for athletes and working with athletes yeah. and telling athletes what is and isn't possible, that yeah. makes me kind of give me a chill, to be honest. It also it also highlights how ingrained the power the the this sort of long-standing power relation since Walter Byers created that idea of the, the quote-unquote student athlete and and ingrained this power relation into NCAA policy and in some ways into law. Ever since that has happened, they've they've undergone five decades of basically propaganda and being brainwashed into believing that that is like the end goal or at least in the believing in that power relation in the existence of the relationship between themselves and their athletic labor and the university and shifting that is very challenging and i can understand why some campus athletic workers or leaders former athletes would see nil as an an end goal when they've been so ingrained um, in they 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 embody that sort of power relation for because they've dealt with it for for kind of so long, um, so I I don't want to I I just don't want to like get into like a, I don't want to be patronizing to those athletes, but I, I agree it's it's like how do we shift the tables even more? How do we how do we stimulate or or how how do we how do we move beyond that when some of the leaders within that field within that um uh, uh sort of realm of uh campus athletic work are also are are also buying into this like nil is the end like nil is like where we should be putting all of our energy and where 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 we should be fighting i think that's like an important question actually yes exactly because 
it's not just about compensation. And this is where it, I think it becomes much yeah. more clear why this yeah. is a, sort of a, a dangerous um, terrain for us to be on. Because the most heinous forms of harm and exploitation in the college sport industrial complex are things like the physical harm, the lack of health insurance for current and former yeah. players, the plantation yep. dynamics, the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, the debased educational experience yes. that is provided, yep. and on and on, right? And that's yep. actually something, and I, and I was really impressed that Jordan McNair, um, the former Maryland football player who so tragically died on a training field, his father, Martin, Martin McNair, pointed this out. Like, look, players deserve NIL, but NIL is not what we should be talking we should, about right now. We should be yes. talking about the fact that I can send my child to a university, an institution of higher education, right? Pedagogy is supposed to be the mandate of these institutions. Nurturing young people is supposed to be the mandate of these institutions. And that institution can kill my child yeah. and just move on. Right, like that's just part yeah. of part of how the sausage gets made, right? And that's unacceptable. Yeah. There's just no yeah. reason f- for that to be the case. Um, so you know, that's I think that's a really sort of salient example of yes. it. Yes. So yeah. if we accept NIL as victory, then we allow college athletes, campus athletic workers, to keep losing in all of these mm-hmm. most profound and painful ways. So then yeah, the you're next absolutely question. right. Yeah. It's a it's a compensation thing, and has nothing to do with all of the other rights that a, a, a laborer should have and has in in so many other respects in in the united states and when you frame it that way as this question very clear because this is what people don't want to do they want to talk about it as sport and then so yeah. sometimes they get queasy because they think sport is wonderful sport is the love of the game yeah. if you start bringing in money yeah. it's sully's sport but when you talk about it as labor then there's actually a very obvious solution that emerges for yeah. ex- every single thing we've talked about. If you have a labor problem, then short of um, a revolution that pr- produces a socialist state, if you have a labor problem under capitalism, the solution is unionization, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not some kind of weird fantasy, right? It's something that is extremely practical. And um, we have seen the way in every sector of the economy, a powerful union can, in fact, buttress the right of workers. And in the context of yeah. college sport, too, unionization is not just a fantasy. Um, now, I'm not just talking about the incredible unionization drive um, of Kane Colt, Coulter and others um, from the Northwestern football team back in 2014, 15, etc. Uh, I'm talking now about the fact that on May 27th, Senators Murphy and Sanders and Representatives Bowman, Levin, and Trahan introduced what they called the College Athlete Right to Organize Act, a piece of legislation that would actually allow athletes to receive compensation from a university who, who, excuse me, who received compensation from a university, which then in that sense includes scholarships, to collectively bargain and actually classifies them as employees. The act is designed... Um, to assert, as you mentioned, assert and assist college athletes' um, right to collectively bargain. They, it would actually amend the National Labor Relations Act to define any college athlete as, um, in any sport uh, as an employee if they receive any direct compensation. And that includes grant and aid or other forms of financial assistance provided by the institution. Um, it also uh, defines or amends the NLRA to define public and private colleges as employers within the context of college sport, which is actually a, fu- a fundamental change. 
um, allowing athletes to collectively bargain at any college, regardless of state laws that restrict any labor rights, um, and facilitates the creation of bargaining units for college athletes by directing the NLRB to consider colleges within an athletic conference, such as the Power Five uh, or the SEC or any of the uh, Power Five conferences. Um, although the bill, importantly, I think um, we have to mention the the um, the bill does not uh, or the act would also assert the NLRB's jurisdiction over all higher education institutions within the context of college sports. So it's not just about Power Five. It's across college sports in general. Um, and it would also give um, athletic workers the ability to petition the NLRB to handle any issues that do arise in the process of collective bargaining. So basically, what this is doing, um, or would propose to do, is to fundamentally change the structural conditions of campus uh, or of college athletics and the the structural conditions that impact the lives of campus athletic workers to allow them um, um, federally to be able to petition the NLRA to not only form unions if they so desire, um, but also petition the labor board um, to deal with any violations or any issues that do come up in the process of collective bargaining. Um, and it sets the stage for the possibility that um, campus athletic workers can not only unionize, but collectively bargain, which I think expands, which I think is a more important way forward than just discussing compensation through NIL. Um, this is where you start to get into fundamental change that actually would deal with the non-revenue or many of the non-revenue um, issues that we've long documented. Um, and not just like um, us on the end of sport, but we have talked to so many athletic laborers about the conditions, their working conditions, particularly in the context of the pandemic. Um, but we've talked to them about all these non-revenue um, issues and non-revenue forms of harms and harm and violence that they've dealt with um, and continue to deal with. And this, I think, and you've put it pretty, um, pretty, pretty well, Nathan, like this is um, the only solution that, that I can think of is to at least set the stage structurally for the ability to form a union to deal with all of the non-revenue issues, as well as the revenue issues. But I think the importance here for our audience, and I think the point that we're making, is that it's about much more than compensation. Stop talking. We need to stop talking just about compensation as the form of exploitation. It is so, so much bigger than that. And we have to deal with all of those other things as well as dealing with compensation is important. Absolutely. Nil is, is, is important. It's, it's a good positive step, but we need to do more than that. There needs to be more done because we need to start conceptualizing athletic laborers, not as athletes, not as sort of, but as laborers, as you put it, as, as labor, there are forms of Yes, it's sport. Yes, it's enjoyable, but it's labor for them. And we're watching labor. And once we can conceptualize it like that, we can start to see things much differently, I think. And listen, don't take it from us. So in a, in a piece we wrote for The Guardian, we spoke to 14 current and former 
college athletes about what unionization would mean to them. Uh, and I want to share some of the, their answers with you because I think that they, yeah. you know, it comes much more powerfully from from the, the people themselves who who are living this struggle. Luke Bonner, uh, a former University of Massachusetts UMass men's basketball player, and also a former organizer for the College Athlete Players Association, uh, alongside Ramogi Huma and Kane Coulter during the attempted attempted unionization of Northwestern football. Luke Bonner told us. The biggest issue in college athletics is the imbalance of power. Too many people are acting like name, image, and likeness reform solves the exploitative nature of the system. It does not. NIL is easy and obvious. Right now, no organization exists solely to represent the best interest of the athlete. And NCAA rules dominate every facet of a college athlete's life and their family's lives too. Having the ability to collectively bargain over mandatory subjects could result in some seriously meaningful reform driven by the actual needs of the athletes. Likewise, Haley Hodson, who's a former Stanford University volleyball player and in fact number one ranked volleyball recruit in the country, agreed with Bonner's take. Um, what, what Hodson told us was that, quote, the current landscape of college sports codifies a power imbalance that deprives the performer, the athletes, from having representation and protection in discussions, agreements, and decisions that impact their bodies, schedules, and careers. Amateurism is an outdated ideal, and giving college athletes mm-hmm. a way to work together to protect their interests through unionization could be a great way at offsetting the exploitation that is baked into the NCAA's governance model. And then, frankly, even more powerfully, um, a current Pac-12 football player who, who asked to remain anonymous because, again, as a current player, right? And I think it's really, it's really salient just to note, right? So we have former players are willing to put their names on it in these cases, and which is great, and I, I admire them for it. But like, if you're still a current college athlete, in many cases, you understand that the power dynamic is such that you could be um, fundamentally penalized for speaking out against the system, against your coaches, against your institution, because there is no union. There is no representation. There's nothing, right? Um, So the coaches have absolute power over whether or not you keep your scholarship, whether you get to play, et cetera. Anyway. Yeah, built into this, uh, built into the the power relation that, uh, that exists and into the working conditions is this sort of totality of control um, and lack of agency on the part of campus athletic workers. Those are we need to um, we need to imagine those things as part of the working conditions for these athletes. That's exactly it. So that current Pac-12 football player said, "We are at the mercy of our respective schools. They get to set the rules and treat us however they want. And the worst consequence is some bad press. But the machine keeps on going." The power dynamics between player and coaches and schools is so off balance that guys were scared to speak up and advocate for themselves in the middle of a pandemic. The NCAA has shown they don't give a fuck about us. It's all about protecting the bottom line and making money. A union would be powerful for us. There are so many issues across all of our sports that a union could help resolve, ranging from coaches that habitually cross the line or being able to put our foot down and ask for health benefits and ultimately being able to profit off our talents. As of right now, there isn't an entity that is able to hold the schools accountable and act in our best interest. I just don't want to be used anymore. A union would give us a legitimate voice by being represented and having a seat at the table so we can protect ourselves from continuously being taken advantage of. 
Um, you know, and I, I think when you, when you listen to these athletes articulate their feelings on it, right. It's like, it's almost like there, there's not much to add to that. That's, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I say that because I want to be clear, right. This, this, is, this is not an academic argument. This is what the individuals involved in the enterprise are feeling, but we never hear of it because of the structure, because of the complicity of the mainstream media in the college sport industrial complex. There is no incentive to articulate, right? These sort of grievances athletes have, and athletes do not typically trust the media to have their back, right? They don't trust the fact that, that the media isn't going to, um, like for, for one thing, the average college sports journalist is so afraid of losing their access, right? Um, because the universities completely control whether or not they're allowed to step foot on campus, whether they're allowed to go to a press conference, whether they're allowed to cover the games, that they don't want to report anything that is going to make the universities unhappy. They don't want, if the universities set guidelines on whether athletes are or are not able to speak to the press, the last thing that these media outlets want to do is violate those regulations, right? They start to treat mm-hmm. them as if they're law, right? Yeah. But they're not law. Yeah. They're just regulations that have been constructed by universities to defend their own interests. In fact, any college athlete can speak to any reporter or member of the media if they want to because they are a person in the United States yeah. and thus have yeah. that basic human right. Um, but we live under this, this, like this terrifi- terrorized regime that the NCAA has constructed that criminalizes every basic form of human interaction in order to defend this profoundly exploitative system. Right. So again, you don't hear athletes telling the truth in public, which is what I'm trying to say. All of this is to say you don't hear them telling the truth in public because it's against their best interests to tell the truth in public. And they have no reason to trust the people who would be their interlocutors. So just to refer to what, one other comment that uh, a player um, provided us, former UCLA soccer player Kaya McCullough, who I should add um, has been part of the, the founding of a new and a very encouraging organization called United College Athlete Advocates, UCAA, which I absolutely encourage you to check out. It's an independent nonprofit run by college athlete leaders that is intended to ensure that from their own literature, college athlete, the college athlete community is safe, educated, and compensated through the pioneer, pioneering the power of unity. So in other words, they're trying to sort of take this principle of a players association, some kind of organization that is going to represent player interests even according to the kind of current status quo without all the changes to the National Labor Relations Act that Derek talked about. Um, so again, I, I encourage you to check out the work that UCAA is doing. What Kaya McCullough told us was, union rights for college athletes would be revolutionary in a lot of ways. I know firsthand what it's like to have the interests of the institutions I played for placed above and beyond my own interests and well-being in terms of health and safety, education, and economics. Union rights for college athletes would act as a counterbalance to the corrupt system that has kept athletes pinned down through the exploitation of labor from some of the most vulnerable communities. My hope is that college athletes and their allies feel empowered enough to both find and use their voices in this fight towards justice and right the wrongs of the past that have come from amateurism and its consequences on racial, gender, and economic equity for athletes. So, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, which with the question of um, Jordan McNair, for instance, um, and what his father had to say, one of the crucial ways in which unionization could prove beneficial 
is clearly in the way it could help address health and safety issues. Um, and I mean, this would be a far less urgent issue, frankly, in the context of a more humane society that actually offered public health care to all, right? Yeah. Because if we actually had faith that um, athletes whose bodies were sort of chewed up and spit out by this um, physically destructive college sports system, but elite sports system in general, if we knew that they would be able to receive the care that they needed for the rest of their lives and that that wouldn't threaten to indebt them for the rest of their lives, um, it wouldn't be the primary issue for me in terms of like how to understand and conceptualize college sport um, or the struggle for justice in college sport. Mm-hmm. However, with that said, we can also look at the fact um, that even in the context of like Canadian society, right, where we do see um, a public health care system, and which I studied for my book, Game Misconduct, when I was looking at the experiences of Canadian hockey players, even in that context where, yes, their, you know, their medical care is going to be covered, the physical and emotional trauma of athletic labor um, still had a profound impact on the rest of the lives of these athletes, right? Whether or not they're actually able to get their surgeries covered, they're able to get, able to get physiotherapy, um, Although, you know, again, physiotherapy is actually not covered by public health care in Canada either. Um, but the issue is that, like, you cannot, if you do not protect the bodies, if there aren't occupational health and safety regulations in place that, that ensure that the harm is never done in the first place, um, then we are doing a massive disservice to the workers in this sector of the mm-hmm. economy, the, the athletic the, 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 the sector of athletic work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, another, it's a, also another example of like how the structure is built to get other people to pay for and or sacrifice um, for the harms that are created by the system itself. In, in other words, like it's another, just like we view, we've made clear, we view nil as, as um, this sort of, way to get other people to pay um, campus athletic laborers to sort of pacify um, the, the broader movement rather than us, rather than NCAA institutions having to, to pay those um, to compensate. This is a, uh, the, the fact that they don't want to deal with um, the non-revenue um, working conditions in any tangible way or, or give um, athletic laborers a, a, say at that, a seat at that table. Um, is another way to, to make other people pay for the for the traumas that extend far beyond revenue generating sport, but extend to um, we have argued and would continue to argue to all um, campus athletic laborers. That's why it's important that it, this is not just a power five or not just a revenue generating sport debate, but it's a, a discussion that extends to all campus athletic workers because they're all subject to the same working conditions. And another way to get other people to pay for for what um, arguably, and I think legitimately, arguably, um, campus or uh, NCAA member institutions should have to pay for, which is this trauma, which is the healthcare, um, which is the the long lasting healthcare after they leave um, healthcare associated with their um, athletic labor. It's another way for for not only for for the somebody to actually pay for those things, but also to to deal with those things to abdicate, abdicate responsibility from dealing with a, me- a, me- a mental and emotional trauma associated with their labor during their time, whether that be 
um, on the field or off the field in so many um, horrifying ways and, and stories that we've heard of um, athletic laborers who have been victimized. It's another way to abdicate the NCAA from any responsibility in that in that discussion. And I think the only way to, to move beyond that is to deal with their rights, to deal with their to deal with campus athletic laborers, um, to have to to give them their deserved seat at the table for dealing with um their working conditions. Absolutely. Um and I mean, all you have to think about for that is the, the fact that the universities do not even take the basic step of providing the health insurance for players, right? The fact that the health yeah. insurance is supposed to be covered by their own families and that after yeah. their careers end in college, there's no coverage. And we can contrast that with what happens in unionized professional leagues. So in the, in the NBA and the NFL, players receive medical, dental, vision, and prescription drug insurance benefits. In the NBA, former players receive health insurance benefits as well. In the WNBA, players receive medical and dental insurance as well as the entirety of their base salary if they need to take leave for pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can just see as soon as you switch the framework to an actually uh, to a labor-based framework, then it becomes entirely logical and coherent for the employer, those who are requiring labor and strenuous, taxing, dangerous labor to occur, they also have a responsibility then to ensure mm-hmm. that their workers are protected in that context. And, and insurance is, the, I think, the absolute minimum bar when it comes to that. Now, another a- a critical, critical, critical axis of exploitation in college sport we always have to consider is the question of plantation dynamics right? Mm-hmm. Which is something that we've discussed at length in an earlier episode and also in a recent piece for The Guardian. The key point to emphasize here, and it's something that NIL absolutely cannot mitigate, although it might provide just a tiny little bit of relief, is the structural coercion that results from the U.S. system of racial capitalism, which is to say the systematic extraction of labor and value from racialized and particularly black people that has fueled the accumulation and prosperity of U.S. capitalism and left so many racialized people in a situation where sport and athletic scholarships offer the best of a range of very bad available options. NIL absolutely cannot meaningfully uh, address or re- and especially redress the plantation dynamics of college sport because those dynamics are principally predicated on the denial of compensation to the black athletes who produce a massively disproportionate amount of the revenue produced in college mm-hmm. sport. And so just as a quick refresher here, in the Power Five, well, black students make up 5.7%, only 5.7% of the general student population. Black athletes make up 55.9% of men's basketball players, 55.7% of men's football players, and 48.1% of women's basketball players. Yet, the tables turn when we think about who the primary beneficiaries of the system are. Athletic department employees who draw large salaries subsidized by that athletic labor, specifically are who I'm talking about. Although non-Hispanic Latino white people make up 60.1% of the U.S. population, 84.4% of Power Five chancellors and presidents are white. In athletic departments across the Power Five, 75% of athletic directors are white. At the coaching level, 80.6% of head men's basketball coaches 
81.5% of women's basketball coaches, head coaches, and 80% of head football coaches in the Power Five are white, right? So, I mean, just to synthesize all that, the point I'm trying to make is that we see predominantly white institutions in the Power Five that are not admitting black students as a rule. They're admitting less than half the proportion of black people in the United States as students, right? And yet at the same time, they are using the labor of African-Americans as the predominant source of labor to fuel their revenue-generating athletic departments. And at the same time, the primary beneficiaries of those athletic departments are the employees of those departments, which is to say not the athletes since they are not categorized as employees, right? But all these officials, the, the, uh, the, those who are athletic directors and whatnot, we're talking about, um, of course, the coaches. And then I, you know, I included as well the chancellor's presidents because we know the brands of these institutions are so inextricably linked at these points at this point to the athletic departments that the the presidents certainly are cashing in as well based on this athletic mm-hmm. labor and those folks are disproportionately white right so the labor is yeah. disproportionately black the beneficiaries of the labor are disproportionately white and and sometimes it's like you don't have to dig too much deeper than that to understand yeah. that this is a plantation dynamic right this is the united states this is why mitch yeah. mcconnell just said the other day that he couldn't understand why people would want to change the system because it's working great, right? Yeah. Who is it working great for? That's always yeah. the question. Um, and so, you know, the single biggest remedy to these dynamics would be a system of collective bargaining that would provide athletes with the opportunity to seize the share of revenue they actually deserve. Um, now, you know, from your standpoint, Derek, and mine, we would clearly want the athletes to be, produ- to, to be pulling in, you know, 90 plus percent of the revenue they produce. Because they're, as we talked about earlier, the entire commodity spectacle is generated by them um, in terms of the value produced, right? Without them, there is no value there. But that's not how capitalism works. Um, And so in the unionized NBA, players see 50% of the revenue. That number is 48% in the NFL. It's 25% in the WNBA. Those numbers are not high enough for me, but they are a massive improvement upon what we see today, right? And so that to me is like, if we were thinking about collective bargaining in the context of college sport and what we might imagine that translates into in terms of revenue share, I think those are the kinds of realistic numbers we should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And again, I just, let's, let's turn back for a second to what the athletes think about this, right? So these are the structural dynamics. But in that piece for The Guardian about um, unionization and college sport, We talked, for instance, to Jordan Walker, uh, a men's basketball player who just transferred from Tulane to the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And here's what he told us about the racialized nature of structural coercion in college sport. He said, for someone who never had a lot of money and never came from a lot, it's hard to provide for yourself, especially on the small amount of money we are given. It's as if we're supposed to use use just that money for food and nothing else. But let's be real. Not one of those people in power, from the coaches, to the presidents of the schools only use their paychecks just for food. It just sucks that people can be making millions of dollars off of us while some nights me and a lot of other athletes are going to bed hungry because we have no money at all. It's just not fair at all. And I mean, to me, again, that tells you the whole story, right? Like, this is a profoundly unjust system. And as we started to say off the top, nothing about this NIL change is going 
to truly um, remediate the most extreme forms of injustice, exploitation, and harm in this entire model, right? Why is it that these players who are playing, who are working 40 hours a week for their schools also have to do every other form of gig work in order to just get enough so they, they feel they have enough to eat at night, right? Even as they watch other people in this system essentially getting rich off of their backs, right? Yeah. And also does it, it also itself like that, that revenue or that um, compensation system itself will be so conditioned by the same structural issues that we see in almost every, the same gendered dynamics, the same racialized dynamics where some, only a select few folks in this NIL era era will actually um, receive remuneration and uh, or, or receive influ a, a lot of money basically only a, a specific group of athletic laborers will um, receive opportunities because um, our society our social structure is built in that way uh, is built to favor certain bodies and and certain um, um, certain lives over others. So it doesn't deal with the, with any of the issues that are created in a system of exploitation that impact thousands, thousands of athletic laborers that go far beyond the power five and far beyond revenue generating sport. Um, none of that is dealt with. And that's also why this is, a it's very um, obviously um, and importantly uh, a question of, of racialized and gendered justice. That's it. And, and um, I think the other thing we have to focus on here, which is almost always left out of this conversation because it's the ugliest. I mean, well, it's not, I mean, there's nothing uglier than the kind of plantation dynamics, but I'm certainly, I'm the, I mean, I guess this is actually the thing. I'm backtracking here because actually every part of this is so ugly, right? Like what happened to Jordan yeah. McNair, the health effects, the concussions, the, 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 the extraction of value from racialized people. I mean, it's all horrifically ugly. Um, but yet the next thing I want to come to is also that disgusting. That's the question of abuse, right? Yeah. And that's something that we yeah. do not talk about enough. The physical emotional and even sexual abuse that occurs in the context of the college sport world. And again, something that athletes have so little recourse to address because they yeah. have no voice. They have no one that's going to stand up for them and defend their interests. What they ultimately have is the hope that if they bring something forward, folks in the athletic department are going to take their word yeah. for it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're forced to go to the folks who are creating the structural conditions that allow for abuse you are forced to go to those folks for a remedy as if they are not the same people who are structuring that very environment and, and creating that very environment for you or at least contributing to it i'm not suggesting everyone in um, athletic departments is like a horrible person and, and doesn't care about athletes but the entire system is built in that way. So if your only sense of recourse is either to go to the media and put your risk or put your um, uh, endeavors at risk or go to the athletic department, it's, it's not, that's not a choice. That's not a, a reasonable choice for folks. 
That's exactly right. And so, you know, check out that, that, that um, Guardian piece on unionization. We talked to a number of athletes in that context who had mm-hmm. had experiences um, about that and spoke about how a union would defect their interests, would protect their interests, including Hillary Dole, a former um, uh, softball player at Cornell University, and Taryn Toffer, a former basketball player at um, the University of Northern Kentucky. Um, but, you know, the example I actually I, I want to maybe highlight here, because we don't have too much time left, and I, and I don't want, mm-hmm. we, we don't want to talk people's ears off too much, but I think it's really important to, um, to highlight this because it's a story that's actually been lost a little bit in the context of um, these recent NIL developments and Supreme Court developments, is the fact that at the University of Michigan, we've seen yet another um, instance of widespread sexual abuse that was allowed to run rampant on a college campus in an athletic department, and especially in the Big Ten, right? We saw it happen at Michigan State, horrifically, with Larry Nassar. We saw it happen at Penn State. We've actually seen it happen at Ohio State. And now we see it happen at Michigan as well. And in the context of Michigan, what we're talking about is between 1966 and 2003, team doctor Robert Anderson sexually assaulted hundreds of athletes at the university. And over the decades, many university officials were informed of the abuse by survivors and failed to act. And some of the people who were informed and failed to act included, reportedly, the late former athletic director, Don Canham. And by the way, what did Don Canham do when he was told of this information? He told a student broadcaster who reported to him that he had been assaulted. He told that broadcaster to go, to go F himself. Um, that includes current assistant athletic director and head athletic trainer, Paul Schmidt. Has also been reportedly, was also reportedly told of the abuse. Two former track coaches, a former wrestling coach, and legendary former football coach Bo Schembechler. Um, Schmidt, for what it's worth, has denied that he knew about the allegations against Anderson. Now, it's becoming increasingly clear that Schembechler, who died in 2006, knew what was happening in the program. The most disturbing recent revelation came from his son, Matt, who was disclosed that he was a survivor of Anderson as a child, and that when he told his father about it, the coach told him that he didn't want to hear about it, and then, this is what Matt has said, quote, that was the first time he closed-fist punched me. It knocked me all the way across the kitchen. Other members of the coach's family have claimed that he was unaware of any abuse. Uh, Another former Michigan player, Daniel Kwiatkowski, who was himself, again, another survivor of Anderson, said that he told Schembechler what had happened to him and, quote, Bo looked at me and said, toughen up. I mean, this is so heinous, all of it. But the part of the story that might actually disturb me the most, and again, no hierarchy of horrors really makes any sense here, is the testimony of former players Giovanni Johnson and Jared Bunch. Like the other players mentioned, like the other individuals mentioned, Johnson said he was rebuffed by Coach Schembechler in his attempt to report Anderson's transgression. But Johnson went on to say that football coaches would threaten players with visits to Anderson as a form of motivation to play better in game. As Johnson put it now, quote, only now do I realize how crazy it was to threaten rape as a way to make players work harder. And then a few days later, Jared Bunch made a similar disclosure, explaining that, quote, if you weren't playing hard enough, or if, or if you were missing assignments or whatever, it was that you were trying to get out of it because you wanted to go see Anderson. That was the whole atmosphere. It wasn't like a whisper. A coach might say it. 
you have to notice how the threat of sexual assault coupled with homophobia here is used as a form yeah. of what Aaron Hat the sociologist Aaron Hatton calls status coercion to compel players to subject themselves to what effectively amounts to overtraining. Mm -hmm. This was the methodology of Michigan football greatness. Turn campus athletic workers into harm-absorbing and inflicting machines, no matter what the cost. And I mean, if we think about it now, that cost has been immeasurable, right? Yeah. But, but not confined to Michigan. As I mentioned before, the disclosures from Michigan echo the revelations at arch-rival Ohio State, which experienced its own horrific sexual abuse scandal involving team physician Dr. Richard Strauss, who sexually assaulted at least 350 athletes over the course of two decades. And in their report, Sports Illustrated reported that, quote, some Ohio State coaches used the mock threat of having to see Dr. Strauss as motivation to make their athletes run faster or play harder. And here's the thing, right? It is unimaginable that the norms inculcated in these programs have not persisted through the years as those trained under the Schembechlers of the world have come to assume authority. Michigan loves this idea, this Schembechler, Schembechler idea of the Michigan man, right? Mm -hmm. And former coaches like Lloyd Carr, Brady Hoke, and now Jim Harbaugh, they were trained to be Michigan men by Schembechler. And what does a Michigan man mean? We're now learning what it means, right? Like this attitude that performance is prioritized over absolutely everything, that sexual violence can be used instrumentally to extract value from human beings. How can we separate that from what it means to be a Michigan man? And then, so how can we separate that from a culture, the culture of the institution that exists today? And also, don't forget that Michigan, Ohio State, these are some of the most absolutely prestigious, pro prestigious programs in all of college football, which means that there's been a diaspora of coaches from those programs across the country, right? Because that's where you recruit yeah. your coaches from, assistants and whatnot, from the most prestigious programs. So this culture, it has to be part of the culture of college sport. And we have seen so much sexual violence that has filtered out of folk football programs, right? Violence against women. How do you separate these things, mm -hmm. right? I don't know the answer to that, right? I, I can't, of course, I can't empirically trace. I can't literally connect the dots between like what happened exactly in Ann Arbor under Schembechler with Anderson and every other thing that has happened in the world of college football. But I think it's just, it's a complete fantasy to imagine that college football, especially on some of these campuses, isn't um, a breeding ground for some of the most dehumanizing forms of behavior and social relations that we have in this country today. And that is something that we can't just sweep under the rug, right? Like something really profound has to change. And I would hope at least that if we were to have um, real, um, legally enforceable representation for players when situations like this, situations that are like, you know, so profoundly unjust emerge, that would at least give some recourse for athletes in these situations, right? So they don't have to feel that they just have to go along with it or lose everything that they've worked for. And in mm -hmm. going along with it, come to internalize it, right? Um, yeah. That there has to be space for being able to push back.
Uh, but the universities don't have an incentive for it. Michigan has a $12.5 billion endowment and a $198 million a year athletic department to defend. And the last thing they want to do is besmirch that reputation or to burn it all down. Even if that's what's yeah, necessary. I mean, it's built, it's, built into the, it's built into the entire structure of not just NCAA college athletics, but also the, the institution of higher education in this country. The, 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 the lack of care and true attention paid to the harms associated, the, the harms that have happened within our institutions. And I, I've, I'm, I'll even go beyond higher education built into the core of, <laughs> of our nationhood, if you will, um, that we don't want to have these discussions of harms in the past or we, and we don't really want to have any fundamental change to, to prevent them in the future. Um, we don't really want to engage in, in large-scale social and political change to deal with all of these, these traumas. And to bring it back to sport, I think one of the, the, or to bring it back to the NCAA specifically, I think one of the, the really poignant um, quotes we had in that piece was um, former UMass tennis player Brittany Collins, um, who spoke explicitly about this and said, and I'm quoting now, um, in the worst cases we have sexual assault, physical abuse, and mental abuse permanently ruining athletes' lives. A player's union allows players to say, no, I'm not enduring that. Right now, they have zero say over their health and safety, and this would change that. And I think that is a really important point. To, to the, there's no dealing with these issues of harm and abuse without allowing folks to voice in a non-punitive way, in an atmosphere where they'll never be punished, never face any um, fear of retribution, um, to be able to voice um, their um, displeasure and, and their rightful displeasure about what is happening um, to them in the working conditions that you've created and that you've structured. And the only way to do this is to have a collective group. The only way to do this is to have power in numbers. It's not to, to expect athletes to one-off go to people within their circle and talk and seek advice and counsel um, from other people. But some sort of centralized force that um, allows athletes to band together and to speak about their working conditions, to speak openly, to speak directly to the NCAA if need be, directly to member institutions, directly to government, directly to politicians and media if they so choose. That's the only way that I see these harms and these abuses in any way kind of dealt with in any tangible way, in any real way. We can pass laws that criminalize things, and, and I have my own takes on criminalizing things. We can pass laws that that demand reporting of certain um, activities. Yes, those are good steps, but we need to provide voice and agency. And, and not we need to provide folks with their own agency, but we need to create the structural conditions that are necessary for the open um, dialogue of working conditions and the open discussion of working conditions for all of our laborers. and. Athletic laborers are a focus here because they endure some of the most obvious and large-scale exploitation and harm and violence that I've seen in the United States um, and, and in Canada as well. 
That's it. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Um, because for me, the bottom line here is ever in college sport is that the bottom line is everything. College football yeah. is going to expand to a 12-team playoff no matter how many bodies have to be battered along the way. Michigan yeah. will protect its precious athletic department at the expense of survivors and their trauma. NIL will simply mean that universities can sanitize their, sanitize their consciences and comfortably continue with the status quo, which is the vicious ex- economic exploitation of their fundamentally racialized labor force. That's going to be the reality unless something more profoundly changes. Um, and we can only hope that unionization might be that pathway. But the, the bottom line is we, we cannot rest on our laurels right now. We can't say this is the end point, right? Like this is, it's, it's time to, to keep on pushing. <laughs>